Well, if you'd have a seat, and we will get started here. For the record, uh, I do have a red shirt on, and I do have a group, and my group does rock the best, but you'll never find out where it's at, because we are so... Yeah, okay, whatever. Um, Well, good morning. I did want to mention one last thing. Uh, There should have been a card in your um, bulletin. It says family memory verse. This is something that um, I just felt a desire to do. says, all scriptures God breathed on the front of it, and uh, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That is what the Word of God is. And Psalm 119 reminds us that, how does a young man keep his way pure, or young woman, or old man, or old woman? Uh, by living according to thy word, and I have hidden thy word in my heart, that I will not sin against thee. And so, Bible memorization is a means of protecting our purity our purity of worship, and the purity of just of our lives. And so we think it important to encourage our families, uh, particularly our head of households, if you lead a family or if you're single, um, to encourage the family that you're leading to memorize Scripture. So we're just taking a verse every month out of what we're preaching, uh, obviously Corinthians. And I realize this verse is, well, more than one verse. Uh, it's like five verses, and it looks intimidating. But if you just imagine having this card at the dinner table at night, uh, as a family, whether you have young or old kids, if they're too young to say it with you, they can still hear God's Word and it still has an impact on them. Um, but you can memorize this, and by the time you've done this for 30 days or 30 you know, different dinners, you'll have memorized it. Um, and it's powerful stuff. So I hope you would uh, take one of those. We'll have others if you, if you missed it. Uh, and we'll have one each month. So just something we're trying and, and seeing. Uh, just, I don't think it's bad to be going through more Bible in your home. We... Uh, Spent most of 2012, uh, if you were with us, going through the book of Judges, and that was in two parts, and it proved to be uh, one of the most disturbing and uh, dark and really difficult to preach books uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, But we went through it verse by verse, and it taught us a ton about uh, our faithful God and how He saves and puts up with children, his children, that are incredibly unfaithful over and over again. So it was a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness and and our unfaithfulness. And now we are, in our first series in 2013, uh, going into the New Testament. And we know, as I said in uh, 2 Timothy there on the front of that card, that this particular book and every book of the New Testament is also breathed out by the same faithful God, And it was, ironically, written by a former, or penned by, I should say, a former Christian murderer turned Christian martyr named Paul. And it was written to uh, a church full of gifted, passionate Christians that are living like pagans. So the unfaithful. So it's really the same story all over again, uh, just at a different time. Now... The letter that we are reading is uh, largely composed of hard words because of the way these people are living. And by hard words, I mean they're they're very difficult, they're very direct. At times, uh, the words are just flat out severe admonishments. You're like, wow, that's mean. Sometimes they're very practical instructions, and at other times, and most times, in fact, all of it is pretty controversial in nature. In fact, this book, or I should say men abusing this book, have created some of the greatest and most memorable divisions in the church, ironically. It's a book that largely is about division in the church. But people have taken much of the doctrine that's taught in here and used it in wrong ways to divide rather than unite the church. Uh, So it's an incredible book. We're in 1 Corinthians, so if you'd open your Bibles, here's how you can find it. The New Testament begins in Matthew. So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the four Gospels. Acts is the story of the church after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. Then Romans is the book of theology in the whole Bible, though the whole Bible could be certainly considered theology. And then 1 Corinthians is the letter we're in. It is written by the Apostle Paul, who uh, basically wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, largely, you know, more than half of the New Testament really, And this is really the second letter we have 
uh, in the Bible, but it's really the second of four that's written to this church. Um, and some scholars argue that we actually have all four, and that pieces of them are attached to 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, but this is actually the second letter. It's a previous letter that he mentions was written to them. But in our Bible, it's called uh, the first letter to the Corinthians. And it's written to a young, cool, uh, passionate, spirit-filled church that is terribly immature. Very immature, very broken. And by immature, I mean that, as I said, they're very passionate, they're uh, excitable, they are gifted, they are growing. But because they're driven by what amounts to kind of juvenile self-interest, like the culture, like the world, they end up being really divided, very unloving, very immoral, and very confused about how to make decisions, cultural decisions, that glorify God. What do I do with brothers or sisters that are sinning? What do I do with a big sinful world outside my front door? What do I do with... Alcohol, what do I do with all these things? They don't really know. Now, the reason that this church has um, kind of, I'd say, become or maybe remained so immature is that after Paul planted the church and left, they forgot, which is a very consistent theme in the Old Testament, they forgot who God had called them to be in Christ, who God had said that they were, and they began to listen to the culture. And they found their identity and what the culture told them about who they were and how to succeed and what success even was. And this cultural machine, for lack of a better term, just kind of overwhelmed this young church and so they didn't really make any lines in the sand. Now, this church is young, but it shouldn't be mistaken necessarily as weak, though we certainly think immature at times can be weak like a young child. Uh, They're also not small. They're not insignificant. It is a church that Paul will say, and you'll see this next week, it's full of God's grace. It is full of gifting from the Holy Spirit. It is full of energy, and it is growing, and it is, by all measures, externally successful. But unfortunately, despite all the success that they've experienced, all the grace that God has poured into their body by different people and different giftings, um, what has happened is instead of bringing the church into the world, they have brought the world into the church. And it's beginning to change them from the inside out, so much so that we have this kind of broken church. And it should sound somewhat familiar, quite frankly, because the same thing is still happening after several thousand years. The exact same thing. Um, The church in this letter, in our world, has been Corinthianized in the same way that perhaps we could say that the church today has been Americanized. It's a very similar thing, and that's why we're going through this letter. Because not only is the culture that we're going to see here actually much like, like our culture, very much the same as Corinth, I have a little bit of fear that the church, and maybe even our church, is in danger of becoming very much like the Corinthian Christians. So we're going to begin this letter just by going through the greeting. We go verse by verse, and sometimes we'll go with big chunks, and sometimes we'll go with small ones. We're going to start with a greeting, and I know you're thinking, especially if you're first time here, going, oh great, you're going to preach on a greeting. Oh, hold on to your hats. You'll see what happens. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians says this, the first three verses today. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sothenes. I was practicing this one, right? Sothenes. That's what it is. Sothenes. I wrote it down there, but I didn't write it here. Sothenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we come before you humbly asking you to teach us. 
We know that your word has the power to change hearts, the power to make those who are blind able to see, the power to heal, the power to change. We ask today, Holy Spirit, that you'll move me out of the way and you will teach what you need to teach to either comfort or convict us, whatever you know that we need. May, if nothing else, Jesus Christ in his name and his glory and his work be lifted up high today. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> so in order to understand this letter and what we're going to go through, we need a proper introduction to the city and the kind of situation that's happening. And so that's what this is going to be part of as well. There should be a map of where the city is. Uh, if you could put it up, David or Harrison, I don't know which one's back there. One of the twins is back there. There you go. All right. I told him I should call him Darrison because I'm never sure. Now, the city of Corinth, you can see, is located um, uh, on what they call an isthmus, okay? And what that is, is just a narrow neck of land um, that actually, it's in Greece, and it's only like four miles across. And back then, they actually had um, somewhat, well, the Romans eventually built, or tried to build somewhat of a canal, but there's two harbors, one on each side of this thing, and at times, if the boat was too big, they would actually lift the boat up and carry it across the land because it was just faster than sailing all the way Around And so, this city, Corinth, has been around for a long time, but it was destroyed um, by the Romans at one point, at about, I think, 200 B.C., and they just devastated and left it. And then, uh, in the year that Caesar actually was assassinated, which is like 44 B.C., and I know you knew that, but now you do, Triple Pursuit, use it. All right, Roman Caesar was assassinated. Right before that, he rebuilt the city. And he rebuilt it and he filled it with, he built it for basically soldiers who had retired and slaves who had been freed. And so there was this new city basically and he wanted to build it uh, or rebuild it because it was strategically located for several reasons. One's for defense and the other is trade. All kinds of trade naturally uh, kind of centered right there. And the idea of having Roman order there, uh, its geography or location, the diversity and the opportunity created kind of this perfect recipe to have a huge city kind of come to fruition very quickly. A city that was very uh, affluent, it was full of business because they had opportunists and adventures and all kinds of people centering there. So in a very short time, the population soared very quickly to like half a million people maybe. And that's a big city for today's standards, um, but it was certainly a huge city back then. And it became what was a, a major cultural center in the Greco-Roman world. Now, tourists have been flocking to Corinth for many years. And we know when tourists come, money comes and excitement comes. And that's because there was a kind of a pseudo-Olympic Games there. Uh, I think it was called the Isthmian uh, Games. It was second to the Olympics. And they even, it was so important, they actually continued to do these athletic events even after Rome first destroyed the city. But the games went on. They always had them going. And so, because of those games, especially with the city being rebuilt, you had all kinds of festivals and athletes showing up and spectators and consumers at least, I don't know how many, every two years or something. I can't remember exactly when it was. But whatever they did, it just flooded the, the economy with all kinds of things. So, this became one of the most popular cities. Hugely popular, hugely successful, hugely prosperous, and it had an incredibly colorful reputation because of that. Think New Orleans like on, you know, steroids. Okay? Now, 1 Corinthians, or, or the Corinthians were known first and foremost as a very self-indulgent people. They did not hold back from any pleasure. And part of the problem was there was pleasure everywhere. And access to it everywhere. And so they were unrestrained in how they pursued and sought to satisfy anything they wanted. So there was all kinds of rampant immorality, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity. And sadly, this is what you see Paul writing about. But he's writing to the church. Okay? But this is the culture around it. And you begin to see like, well, where does the church end and where's the culture? We're not sure. And that's part of the problem. And so it was very self-indulgent. The city was built... Under the shadow, there was a hill uh, of the temple to Aphrodite. And so, literally, each evening, a thousand sacred prostitutes came down the hill to offer their services to the city. This is the 
city that Paul was writing to. This is the city where he planted a church. If you want to say out of maybe three things that our culture today is defined by, sexual perversion is definitely in the top three. It is everywhere. We talked about this when we went through Judges. It is the first sign, if you will, that a culture has really abandoned God. Sexual perversion. And you begin to make laws to actually uphold that, you're in a whole other dangerous world. Now, the name of Corinth actually became an international, so like global, all through the Roman Empire, an international byword for evil living and sexual perversion. Like, well, yeah, there goes the Corinthians. I mean, that's what it's like. So what you have is like living like the Corinthians back then would maybe be similar to keeping up with the Kardashians today. Okay? Well, that, what is that? Well, that is the byword for basically hard partying and loose living. And literally, that's how people would use that word. So they were self-indulgent. And with all the wealth they had, all the opportunity they had, that brought a lot of diversity in the city, religious diversity, just different people, different businesses. It was very colorful. But it also created a city that was very self-absorbed because everyone wanted to succeed. And they didn't want the other business that was competing with them to succeed. But that became relational. So they were very self-absorbed. They considered themselves individually and corporately, to be the center of the Roman universe. We are a hugely important city and the center of everything that's going on in Rome. Now think about if a church begins to adopt that, which it happens. Like, you know, the gospel ends and begins with our church. Dangerous. I don't for a second believe, as we go into Snohomish, that the gospel is finally arriving there. It's there. It is living and thriving and is specifically living and thriving with the church that's partnering with us there. But the Corinthians were competitive in life as they were in their athletics, and their drive to get ahead negatively impacted every relationship they had. In fact, they became completely devoted to winning, right? That's what their word was. We are all about winning, and we are all about winners, And so why would I put faith in a guy named Jesus Christ who by every earthly measure lost? Right? Last place you think the gospel will be received? Well, the first place is Paul went. Jesus Christ, by measure of wealth, power, popularity at the time, failed. That was what I wanted to put on the card for our Easter service on the crucifixion. One side on Good Friday... Epic fail. Next side, not for the resurrection. Because it looks like that. So you have a you know, competitive problem. Why do I want anything to do with Jesus Christ? Values were totally different. Success in Corinth, and dare I say our culture, the one we live in, the one we're a part of, the one we perpetuate, is measured by popularity and power and prosperity. Well, the gospel has values like humility and weakness and sacrifice. Those things are despised in Corinth. Those things are despised in our world as well. So in turn, what that did was they're very competitive, like, you know, we're adversarial here, became very self-reliant and autonomous. I don't need you, you don't need me, we don't need community, I just need... What happens when a church does that? Finally, the Corinthians also had a reputation for self-promotion. And this is the one that's going to get some of you. It's really hit me a lot this week as I've been studying it for actually a couple weeks. Every part of the lives of the Corinthians, uh, from their wealth to their wisdom, you see wisdom and knowledge are stated a lot in this book. Paul's constantly talking about it. It's because the Corinthians are constantly talking about it. These things became a tool that people could make much of themselves in order to gain the approval of men. And so what they were interested in and what they admired and what they saw as a winner was someone who had at least the appearance of knowledge and persuasive rhetoric. They could talk well. They were charismatic. In fact, that became more important than actual wisdom or actually doing anything. So you get to a place where people don't actually accomplish or achieve anything, but they can talk and write an awesome blog about it. Sound familiar? 
it should, much um, of Corinth was excited about the cleverness of speech. Paul uses that phrase. And the cleverness of speech was basically used to um, impress others and to prove you were superior to others, specifically in relationship to them. And that became more important than actually having relationships. I think it's very similar to the superficial culture that we've actually had social media create. And I talk about social media creating as if it's something apart from us, but it's just us that we've created. If you think about it, it's a culture that is committed to uh, self-promotion. And I know a lot of us, I say us, use Facebook. And they, Facebook is not evil any more than alcohol is but we certainly take good things and use them poorly because of the sin in us. And you think about some of the things that people put, I'll say people to make you feel better, you. People put on, it's like, oh, God, he said people, right? But that people put on Facebook to promote themselves. What they're eating in that moment, right? Things that they um, have seen or, or whatever. And we think about, well, I put Bible verses up there. Well, I know, but you ever consider why you put those up there? Because oftentimes you want people to know that that's what you're reading. That's the team you're on. Your John Piper quote. And I'm guilty of it as well. I'm on John Piper's team. I'm on Apollos' team. I'm on Paul's team. Oh, wait, that sounds familiar. Why do we say those things? We're about promoting ourselves. We're about creating a persona out there so that people will feel good about us. I know this has never happened to you, but it happened to me, so I'll be honest, right? You ever posted something up there that was really meaningful to you? Maybe it was a blog. Maybe it was just some statement. It was some event you did in your life and some accomplishment. And you looked back to see if anyone liked it or commented, and no one did, and you were disappointed. No, I've heard about those kind of people. Glad I'm not that shallow. That's happened to me. I really had to go through that. I, I, I blog. I, I haven't blogged that much lately, but I blog, and I would look and see if anyone, like, it's like you can track it. Is anyone looking at that? There's a sickness about that. It really is. And we do that all the time. We promote ourselves, and we think about this just like the Corinthian culture. We have a culture that's committed to gaining followers, being liked, going viral. Those things blow my mind, Right? People now are like on the news because of videos they've made of them doing stupid things. They're like, yeah, I got a million hits for dancing like a freak. Isn't that awesome? Like, no, why are we, what? what? We are about self-promotion and pretense reigns in our culture. Fakiness. And... What happens in a culture like that, and what's happened in Corinth, is that a good presentation of lies becomes better than the actual truth. Simple speaking truth. And so, you end up having a, an environment that you're forced to kind of keep up appearances, and, and people have this like performance anxiety, and an antagonism, and quite frankly, even an intimidation and a depression. Because they're seeing like, oh my gosh, these other people's lives are awesome. Look at all the things they're doing, and they're liked by everybody. I suck. You get start getting depressed and impacted by it. Perhaps this explains, like if this is the culture Paul's going into where people are really popular for how they sound, Paul says he came to this place with fear and trembling. You ever wonder why that was? Perhaps it's because he was coming from a very simple truth. He wasn't super charismatic. He just was speaking very plainly and wasn't going to be excitable and have balloons and fireworks, right? Uh, they probably didn't. Romans hadn't invented balloons yet, right? So it didn't happen. But that's where he's coming into. So that's the culture. And this is, despite his fears, the place where Paul said, I'm going to plant a church there. Why? Because it is an urban center. It is a place, and that's where he plants churches so that he can impact the world with the gospel. People will come there, hear the gospel, and end up leaving. And so if you turn uh, backwards, it'll be the other way, I guess, in Acts chapter 18, you'll see when he planted the church and what it was like. And how... Well received it was. Acts 18, I think it's important to get a picture of where we're going and what Corinth was like. Because in the midst of 
being rejected, there's some beautiful things God is working in there. And what you have is Acts 18 begins with uh, Paul prior in Acts 17 had been reasoning with Athenians, Athens, right? On Mars Hill. And then he left. And him leaving there at this time, we all think of Athens like the place of philosophers and all that stuff, right? And it is, but at this time, Athens was kind of like a rundown college town. Okay? So, sorry. Like, Ellensburg maybe, right? (laughs) For those of you who go to Central, I apologize. But, you know, Central is not the number one place on our list. Like, i got to make sure that I stop in Ellensburg and hang out there. Because there's just not much there but the school. But that would be like leaving there and going to downtown Seattle. Right? And going to the, the U district where, where life is, this is the difference where Paul is headed. So Acts 18, here's what happens. He says, after Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, Roman Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now this puts a date for us. This is history. This is the late 40s when Claudius actually historically made this Declaration, and then they're meeting him there. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul had a job other than being just a pastor. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, which I think is an awesome, awesome, awesome statement. I pray when Jesus comes, I'm just occupied with the Word. That's just cool. He was testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled Him, He shook out His garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so, as Paul's practice was, every time he came to a city, he was Jewish and a really good Jew. Okay, And he would come in and he would go straight to the synagogues. The synagogues were like the gathering places of the church. And it was also places for um, commerce and trade and just fellowship. So he would go straight in and he would debate with them, basically say, all right, the Messiah was Jesus, let me prove it. And he would argue back and forth. Well, eventually here, they're like, we're done with this. And they kick him out. He's like, fine, I'm going to the Gentiles now, the non-Jews. And so he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Isn't that awesome? You want me out of here? Fine. I'll preach over here. Okay? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So although all the Jews kick him out of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue becomes a Christian. Awesome. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, which if God ever comes and says to you, do not be afraid, usually that means there's something coming that you will probably be afraid of, okay? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, though they'll try, for I have many in the city who are my people. That's cool. To see a world and a culture that's full of sin and seemingly the only things we see, specifically if you watch the end of the year presentations of 2012, Is all the bad stuff happening? Know that God is still at work. And God is still saving people. And hopefully you'll hear some about that tonight. And he stayed a year and six months, so 18 months, teaching the Word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was... About to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to judge, to be a judge of these things. He drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sothenes and ruler of the synagogue, and he beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So there's his planting of Corinth. Stayed there for 18 months, experienced all that. Then he traveled to another city you probably have heard of called Ephesus. Took Priscilla and Aquila with him, 
left them there, went on to Antioch, where he was first sent out of, and then he came back to Ephesus. And there he spent about two years teaching uh, in a hall called Tyrannus, which sounds very Jedi Knightish, right? Taught in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul would spend chunks of time in places. He didn't just like run around and keep going. He'd stop and he would develop leaders and make new disciples. And as he's in Ephesus, he gets two reports about the Corinthian church that he planted. One comes from a letter from the Corinthians. And they basically say, we got all kinds of questions. What do we do with food sacrificed to idols? Because some people think it's sinful, some people think it's not. What do we do when we disagree? What do we do with law? Like those kind of things. Then another group of people show up about the same time from the household of Chloe. We read about that in the beginning of the letter. They show up personally, called Chloe's people. Okay, And Chloe's people basically say, the Corinthian church is messed up. We got son-in-laws sleeping with their mother-in-laws. We got people getting drunk. We got communion looks like an argument feast. It's like messed up. People are suing each other. We got problems. So Paul hears these two reports and goes, oh my gosh, this is disturbing. And 1 Corinthians is the response and letter to deal with both these things. Some some very practical issues, but largely a lot of the sin issues that have come to infect this church. And so the very first thing he's going to do in his letter is basically say, this is who I am, and then this is who you are, and don't forget that. And so he begins by saying, Paul, called by the will of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother, Sothenes. And so the letter begins with a very traditional greeting, as most of his letters do. Our letters, right, are to, blah, 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 from. His is to and from, in the very beginning. And so his from is obviously himself, and he identifies who he is in three particular things. He says, I am called. Called by the will of God. He declares, he's like, he knows who he is. He later says in the Corinthian letter, I don't care what you think I am. I don't care what I think I am. All that matters is what and who God says I am. We all struggle with that. He says he was called by God. Now, later in the letter, you're going to see that there's been some conflict between Paul and this Corinthian church because some of them are starting to question whether he's a real apostle. He says, look, I was called by the will of God. Jesus said my name and I followed. Period. By calling, that means that Jesus is the one who saved him. Jesus is the one who changed him. Jesus is the one who is leading him now. In other words, his salvation, his transformation from Christian murderer to Christian martyr was not his idea. Was not his plan. He did not decide one day to pray a prayer. He did not invite Jesus, the Lord of the universe, into his heart because he felt that was the best option. Jesus showed up in a very powerful way in Acts 9, called his name, and Paul could not help but turn. Even if it was Jesus grabbing him by the back of the shoulder to You're mine. All right, I'm yours. That's salvation. That's transformation. That's called by the will of God. Jesus shows up, and I fall. So Paul here is not trying to pull rank. He's not like, well, I was called by God. Right? He actually is not yet being authoritative. He actually is trying to be quite humble. Say, look, I live in submission to God. And knowing that, it's important because I think a lot of pastors and just people who speak truth, Paul himself, a lot of people question their motivations and their actions. So what you have to know is that his actions are not driven by what he intellectually even understands because there's some stuff that just doesn't make sense. His actions are not and decisions are not driven by what he can emotionally accept because there's some things that, let's be honest, would be a lot easier to 
believe than some of the things God tells us. His actions are not motivated by what makes him popular. How do we know that? He gets beaten like every city he goes to. And he is not committed to what brings success. That's not how he makes his decisions. He is driven by a deep desire to be obedient to the God who chose to save him. Is that yours? Is that your motivation? Is that what drives you? Is that your authority in your life? For, for some of you, it's your intellect. And you'll accept the things that you can make sense of, but the other stuff, I don't know. For some of you, it's your emotion. Well, it feels good. Popularity, success. Paul says, it's God's will. Whatever God's will is. And then he says, I was called to be an apostle. Right? So not only did Paul not decide one day just to follow Jesus, he didn't decide what his role or mission was going to be. God dictated that too. See, the Bible uses the apostle in the word apostle several different ways. In the Old Testament, it is used by uh, the Jewish people to talk about people who go and representing groups and things like that in an official capacity. It's used in the New Testament. The twelve disciples are called apostles, as are a few others, because the most common use is actually one who is sent. It's not always one who is committed personally by Jesus Christ, though that's it's the big A apostle. It is commonly used to describe those who are sent. So in other words, in Paul's words, he has been sent by Jesus, who Colossians 1 says is the head of the church. That's hugely important, not just for Corinth. What do I mean? Well, in order to affect change here, in order to help them listen, Paul declares that he does not come on his own authority, but as one who is sent to represent Jesus Christ. I come in the name of Jesus. I come with a mission from Jesus. I come speaking for Jesus. Well, what's that mean? It means that Every word that this letter that we're going to study carries. Every jot and tittle. Cross T dotted I. Every word carries the weight and authority of the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. Which means we don't have the option to go, I like these parts and I don't like these parts. We are going to go into this Word, we're going to study His Word, and then we're going to accept what it teaches. This is, if you're not certain, the authority of our church. It is not, we're not Catholic. It's not church Bible. The Bible defines who we are. The Bible defines what the church is. The Bible guides and governs our lives, individually and corporately. And so, that means that there is no disagreeing with Paul. Because to disagree with Paul is to disagree with Jesus. Now, we might disagree on what Paul says. That's why we spend time studying and reasoning. We don't disagree with Jesus. Note to self. You want to write some of your notes? Don't disagree with Jesus. Okay? End of sermon. This will be important for us because, quite frankly, as we go into 1 Corinthians, here's what you're going to find. His words, though difficult, are not difficult to understand. They're difficult to accept. They are difficult to accept. Now, the last thing that's maybe unusual for us to think about when Paul and he talk about his own calling he includes a team member with him. Sosthenes. He's a former Corinthian who's with Paul. Perhaps he's trying to build a bridge back to the Corinthian. I got one of your peeps with me. Don't forget. Who was he? Well, at the end of Acts 18, he was the guy who must have taken Crispus's job, ruling the synagogue, and then was beaten when Paul was brought up on charges. I don't know why they beat him. He didn't do anything. But they beat him, and eventually it seems, it's not recorded, that he became a believer. 
and left his cushy job ruling the synagogue. But what this tells us is that Paul was not called alone. None of us are. Paul's not Rambo. He's part of an army. And he, if you read Romans 15, you'll read, like, it's a chapter of thanking different people, like over 40 people that are part of Paul's team. God never calls us alone. He's designed us to be on mission together in a group with different roles and different pieces. And everyone always thinks like the pastor is like a better piece than someone else or a Bible study leader, better piece than the person who vacuums the floors. Let me remind you something. The one important piece, the essential piece to your life is your head. And guess who that is? Jesus. Okay? So the rest of us, How do we know the pastor isn't the fingernail? Well, I never thought about that. You're right. Or maybe the bottom, the knee, who knows? But no one's going to say that this finger is better than this toe. No one's going to say this knee is better than this shoulder. We're all the same with different roles, but together. And without a shoulder or knee or a bottom, I guess, your life would be very distinctively different. Don't let your imagination go too far. But God calls people together and He's continuing to build disciples and he, sometimes He chooses as He's building some people that are very unlikely, like the ruler of the synagogue. And others, very likely. Some He chooses are very faithful, seemingly, and sometimes He chooses Christian murderers like Paul. Very unfaithful. And sometimes He chooses those who feel prepared because they have all kinds of abbreviations after the name and went to school, and some who don't know squat. That's who God builds His team, but He always builds a team. So Paul has kind of positioned himself, this is who I am, this is who I have been called to be, this is what I've been called to do, and then he's like, now let me tell you who you are, church. And it's almost identical. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, To those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. What does he begin by saying? I am writing to the church of God in Corinth, not the church of Corinth. This is the church of God in Marysville. Not the only one, mind you. We'll talk about that. The word for church, ecclesia, meaning assembly, It's a very common word, but certainly not supposed to be a common assembly, and that's why we attach God to it. This is God's assembly. It's different than all others. In Corinth and in our culture, we have all kinds of people gathering for fellowship and for business and for tradition even and for mission. But God's assembly is different. It is not Paul's church. It is not the Corinthian church. It's not Apollos' church. It's not Sam's church. It's not your church. It's God's church. And it's made for Him by Him. And as God's people, what Paul says is true about Him is going to be true about the church. A church is not just something we, we do together. The church is something that we are called to be. It's called to be something in particular. and It's called to do something as a result of who they are. They are called, and he will say it, and empowered to live as the people of God in the world. And so the first thing he says is that the church is called saints. I know we talk about sin a lot in this church, and I think we ought. I don't know how often we talk about being saints, and this is the first thing Paul starts with, mind you, with a church that is very sinful on the surface. Paul was called to be an apostle by the will of God. In other words, God acted and Paul became what he was. But there was nothing for Paul to do in order to achieve or become an apostle. God made him one. It wasn't like, alright, I want you to be an apostle, so go take some apostle classes and then you will be approved to be the apostle. God said, you're mine, you're on mission, you're sent, go. So similarly, Paul begins by calling the church to remember and to be what God has said that we are. 
Stop listening to what culture says that you are as a person or even as a church. Paul says, through faith in Christ, you're saints. Clean. Pure. Forgiven. Children of God. Citizens of His kingdom. Saints. For those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of what you do, but because of what He's done. So we think of saints, right? Saints are the guys that have died, and someone comes along with a righteousness rubric and goes, man, they did a lot of holy things. They were like a super Christian. Let's make them a saint. That's not what we're talking about here. We don't die and become saints because we did a bunch of good holy things. We are living saints now, according to Paul. And that perspective will change your way of living and your way of viewing yourself and probably others. This is not something to attain. Paul doesn't say, hey, go become saints. He says, you're saints if you're in the church. You're saints if you are saved by Jesus Christ. You're saints if you put your faith in Him. It's something to receive, not to attain or achieve. So unlike the world that tells us, this is who you are. This is how you're defined. Right? You are defined by your job. You're defined by your desires, good or bad. You're defined by the relationships you had. You're defined by your failure. You're defined by your suffering. You're defined by your success or your prosperity. You're defined by your past. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the church finds its identity in the historical work and the living person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins that we deserved and gave us the sinless life through His resurrection that we were incapable of living. That's what defines us. We're saints. And we're called to be that. To live that. To believe that. Not that it's happening, but that it's happened. And the church is also called, he says, sanctified. It's like Paul was called to be an apostle. The church called to be sanctified. There's nothing that, as I said, Paul contributed to becoming an apostle. God did all that. But there was much for him to do as an apostle by the will of God. In other words, apostles act like apostles. He was called and empowered to live out who he was in Christ. So he believed his identity and he worked hard. Colossians 1.29 says this. He worked hard through the power of God at work with him. But he worked. The church is called to be sanctified saints. And in one sense, this is done, right? The idea of sanctification, the, the willful act of God, whereby we have been set apart by God. He has done it. We contributed nothing but our sin to the process. He set us apart to reflect Himself, for us to enjoy Him, to be used by Him, and to one day share in His glory with Him. That's what is God or what God has done. But in another sense, because He decided or not to take us as soon as we became Christians which I always think would be an amazing thing, like, I think I believe. Dang. He left us here. He set us apart here. And we are called to actively, as those set apart, serve God's purposes and not our own, while we still have breath. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is our Lord. And Lordship of Jesus is not just a state of mind, though it certainly starts as a foundation of belief in the Gospel. The Corinthian church is struggling with just being the state of mind. We are called to more than just thinking or talking. The Corinthians have the thinking and talking nailed. But they're living like pagans. Saints are called to live a particular lifestyle and it is to be radically different than the surrounding culture. And I'd ask you, and I've asked this before. Can anyone tell you're a Christian without you having to tell them? 
Does your life look any different than your neighbors or your friends? And it's not just how you talk or how you dress or the fact that you leave in the morning on Sunday and come to worship. But as you do talk, how do you perceive and dialogue about suffering? How do you demonstrate sacrificial giving and loving them, though they may not be lovable? How do you speak about success? How do they see you living success or lack thereof? Sometimes the best way to preach that we are Christians is things like how we suffer and letting others watch. But we are to live radically different, and what it all amounts to is becoming and living out in practice what we already are in position. This honors God. This brings joy to us, and it preaches to the world. It's what we're called to do. We have something to do. And finally, just like with Sosthenes, we're not just called to be alone by ourselves as sanctified saints. We are called together as the church. He said, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord. See, we're a family of families, and the church was not just an addendum on God's plan, like, hey, let's do this too. The church isn't like plan B. The church was plan A from the beginning. And it's not intended to be optional, right? Like, family's optional? I think I'll be a family member today. No, not today. That's what we're talking about when we really say family of families. It's central to God's mission, but maybe more importantly, it's essential to us and our living and our joy and our, and our hope and our change. We are called together as one family. This is why we've taped the series one, because we're talking to a church that has all these things that are going awesome with it, but they're going in 15 million different directions. And this from a pastor who said, hey, let's go and divide our church and worrying about the unity that we are one church brought together by one Savior under one God for one mission that we are all a part of. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and Jesus is our pastor, not Sam. I'm pastored with you. And by the will of God, for whatever reason, for those who are committed here, you are Damascus Road Church. And God has called you together to be engaged with the family. And as you think about Snohomish, I know some of us are like, well, that's, I know I heard some people are doing that, or Honduras, or Haiti, or whatever. No, you're doing that. We're doing that. There's a level of interest and joy about what the family's doing. And wanting to be a part of it, and knowing that you are a part of it. Let us not believe, though, for a moment as we go and grow and do all these things that Damascus Road Church is the center of the universe. That's what the Corinthians were guilty of. They couldn't see beyond themselves. They couldn't see beyond their own families. They couldn't see beyond their own church and their own preferences and their own mission. And some of you are guilty of that as well. And some of us and me are guilty of that, believing that, oh, well, the gospel's finally arrived. Because we're here. I confess that's an evil, evil sin. We are called together with all people who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And yes, there are people who call upon the name of Jesus Christ who, quite frankly, are on the fast track to hell. But there are a lot of gospel-centered churches and Jesus-believing disciples in this city and other cities. And the church that we're partnering with, Christ the King's Homeless, is a fantastic example a church that loves Jesus, and they're going to be here tonight because they want to bless us. And they want to share about what we're doing together. Because I don't for a second believe that we're arriving to help out. We are simply called to go there, and they're partnering with us to do that. We are called to cooperate with gospel-centered churches, and quite frankly, we're called to pray for churches. We're probably called to pray against some others. But there are plenty of churches in this city and in others that we need to pray for. When's the last time you prayed for another church? I dare not ask if you prayed for ours. Have you prayed for another church? I'll be honest, as a pastor, that's very difficult. Or was difficult. I've repented since then. Because you do become competitive like the Corinthians. 
and sinful. We want to see God's glory and God's name go forward, not ours. And this is how we're called to go together as one. And so we'll close with the last verse that he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul closes with what Christ has done to bring us back to God because he wants to bring us all to what's most important. See, within the first three verses, he mentions Jesus at least three times as the key to who we are and what we do. What does he say? The power of Jesus calls Paul into apostleship. The grace of Jesus sanctifies his saints. And the name of Jesus unites the church. This represents the heart of his letter. And I know it's easy to make it practical because he's going to write some hard words and just think, well, he's just giving them rules to follow. What he wants them to do as they reform their behavior to know how that's going to happen. And how that's going to happen is that the motivation to change, the desire, comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The means and the power to do it comes from Jesus Christ. And the model of how we're supposed to live in this world that is broken is seen in Jesus Christ. That is the heart of this letter. Through all the practicality, the foundation of all of it is, you need to believe Jesus died for you, the sins that you deserve. And that He gives you this sinless life freely, through faith, through His resurrection, so that you can actually live. But that living is just not, okay, I'm saved. The living is to do something now that you are saved. You don't act and, and work and do these things so that He will accept you. You are accepted, now act. And if you fall flat on your face, hey, praise God for the cross. And if you succeed and you knock it out of the park, praise God that Jesus is doing you through that through you, you sinner. Right? You boast in Jesus either way. Because my greatest fear is to build a church, to lead a church, to have a church that's gifted and that's passionate and that grows and becomes popular. And everyone comes in, and there's no Jesus. We have no gospel. Because guess what? That can happen. Easily. As we grow, and as we go to different parts of this region, and as we change, because things are going to change, I pray we will never forget our calling as the people of God. The one thing that never changes. This is not our church. It's not our mission. This is not even our life. It's His. And Jesus must govern who we are and what we do every moment, not just your 45 minutes plus on Sunday mornings. Without Jesus, without the grace of Jesus, guess what? You ain't going to have peace and squat diddly. No peace. Because that's where peace comes from. And what will happen instead is that your calling will just be killed by your pursuit of everything that's not Jesus. And your calling, apart from the grace of Jesus, your calling to be will never extend beyond just your circumstances defining you. And your calling to do will never extend beyond doing anything but for yourself. We are not called to become more. We are called to believe that we are more. And that will change what you do. According to Scripture, in this simple greeting, in Christ, we are saints. Forgiven. Clean. Pure. Adopted. Irrevocably. You don't become a saint one day, and then the next day, oh, I'm not very saintly. You're a saint. Whether you sinned on the way to church today, which you probably did, swear at that guy cutting you off on the road, right? You're a saint. Receive Christ's forgiveness. And we are set apart for His purposes, so live that saint, saintliness. And in Christ, we are one family united by the Gospel. And only dwelling on what Jesus has done will we have the courage to fight. The courage to fight. The joy to work, because if it becomes duty, we've lost. And the peace enough to rest in the midst of it, even if we fall short of whatever expectations we might have had. I'll close with this verse. If you'd stand, and I'll read Philippians 1. Band, you guys can start coming up. 
I'll read this verse because it's God's Word and we want to hear it. Philippians 1, 27 and 28 says this about our calling. Let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel and not frightened in anything. Let us not be fearful. 